Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Good morning and happy Palm Sunday. One of the things uh, that I think we wrestle with as we come to Holy Week and Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter is that we sit in the midst of, of the tension of Holy Week. The tension of the celebration and the joy of seeing kids waving palm branches around. And then the tension of Jesus' trial and crucifixion only to have that grief alleviated by the truth of Easter and the resurrection. And as I think about uh, that kind of balance, that tension that we live in, I, I can't help but think of our own lives and just the way that we kind of rest in that tension and the tension between moments of grief and frustration and feeling overwhelmed uh, and then moments of joy where we see uh, God show up in ways that was unexpected. Um, and that's the tension that we sit in today as we come to Palm Sunday and we move from the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to his trial before Pilate and the chief priests before he's executed. But before we get there, I have a question uh, for you. And my question is this. Anyone in here a fan of the game Wordle? Anyone play Wordle? Yeah, okay, a few people. Yeah, I'd love to see some hands if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, a few of you. Wordle is this game that uh, it's on the New York Times, and you go on, and basically you have six guesses to figure out a five-letter word. And it's this game that's become incredibly popular. Uh, people have been playing it. If you go on social media, on Twitter, people are always sharing how long it took them to get these words right. Uh, and I don't mean to brag, but this is a true story. I always start with the same word every single day to try to, to kind of see where, where I'm going. And yesterday, the word that I always start with was the first word. And so I got it right. Very first guess. Uh, Wordle called me a genius. And so I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm feeling kind of high, feeling kind of kind of smart. And so, uh, yeah, and it, I mean, it didn't say that about me all the other days. I used the exact same words. So I don't know what that means. But called me a genius. I'm going to take it to the bank. Um, but what's fascinating about Wordle is this. This is a game that a lot of people play. It's kind of taken uh, the world by storm. And uh, a few months ago, this game that was invented by a guy named Josh Wardle, um, he sold this game to the New York Times. And when he sold this game to the New York Times, uh, people started getting really frustrated because they thought the game got harder. This guessing game about these five-letter words got a lot harder after the New York Times bought it from this guy. And they started getting all these words wrong, and they couldn't get them right in six guesses. And so they thought the New York Times had ruined the game and made all the words harder, and they were so frustrated, and they are like, I'm giving up. I don't want to play Wordle anymore. And the truth was, though, is that when uh, Josh Wordle had sold the game to the New York Times, part of the agreement was that they wouldn't actually change the game that much at all. In fact, they didn't do anything to change the algorithm that he had come up with. In fact, the only change they made to the game was that they took out five words that they thought were too difficult for people to guess. They had actually made the game easier. When people were presented with this truth, 
They rejected it and resisted it, and they thought, no way, this is some sort of conspiracy. The New York Times was trying to tell us that they didn't do anything, but, but they, for sure they had to have done something to change the game and make it harder. And when they were presented with the truth, they resisted it, they rejected it, because the truth was harder to d- believe than the illusion that they had kind of created for themselves. It was harder to look in the mirror and say, maybe I just don't know these words. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was, so I'll create this conspiracy to try to make myself feel better about myself. And they came across this story, this kind of whole story about um, Wordle in a, in a magazine and an article that, where they were exploring the neuroscience of humanity and how we have a propensity. We have a, this disposition where we often are confronted with the truth and we choose illusion instead. That there's something about humanity that, that the truth can be staring us in the face And we can say, nope, don't believe it. I prefer my illusion. I think we've seen this across our society and across our culture in in many different ways where people can be confronted with the truth. They just don't like it, and so they choose not to believe it. We resist truth for illusions that fit better with our narratives and how we see ourselves or how we see the world. And I think this conversation around truth is so important given that the way that our society has really been on a journey the last number of years of deconstructing truth. I mean, in many ways, we can't even agree on what is true. We can look at a historical event and have completely different truths that we pull away from these situations and these circumstances and these things that happen to us. And there's a, a famous postmodern philosopher. His name um, was uh, Richard Rorty. Now, when I say famous postmodern philosopher, I, I, I think that's actually just kind of a funny thing. Who is a famous philosopher? Like, no one, no one has heard of Richard Rorty, and yet he has to tell people, I'm a famous philosopher. But there's no such thing as a famous philosopher. But this is what he said about our relationship with truth. He said, the truth is whatever your peers will let you get away with. It's kind of comical, right? I mean, the truth isn't really uh, um, subjective. It's just kind of loose, and it's based on whatever the popular consensus is. I mean, truth is kind of defined by popular opinion or our friends more than something that's objective. And if we can't trust our friends, let's be honest, then maybe we can just turn inward and find the truth within ourselves. If they tell us something that we don't believe is true, then we can just look inward and find the truth within ourselves and whatever makes us feel better. There's a, another famous philosopher and historian, and he actually is pretty famous. A lot of people have, have actually read his books. He's written books like uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus, and his name is Yoval Noah Harari. And he's a historian and one of the leading atheists of our time. And this is what he said about our relationship with truth. In earlier times, it was God who could define truth, goodness, righteousness, and beauty. But today, those answers lie within us. Our feelings give meaning to our private lives, but also to our social and political processes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it and think for yourself. These are some of the main humanist credos. And coming from an atheist perspective, someone who doesn't believe in God, he says, if you just remove God from the equation and take out his authority, then yeah, we can come up with whatever morality and whatever truth we want and whatever feels good to us. We can just decide what's true based on a gut level feeling. 
And it's easy, I think, sometimes for the, for the church and people who follow Jesus to point at culture and say, oh, yeah, look at how, like, how imbalanced your morality is and how you don't have any handle on the truth. And you just think the truth is relative and whatever goes and however you feel in the moment and it's left you lost. But it's easy to point the finger. But I wonder how many times that truth has actually infiltrated our own community. I mean, I wonder how many of us come to parts of scripture where we read something about God that we don't really like and so we decide, oh, that's probably not true. It probably didn't happen that way. Or or we come to our relationship with God and there's things that we are told are true of God, but we're not sure we really like them. And and so we explain away the truth of who God is to to a lesser degree that makes us feel better about ourselves. And you see, I think we live in a time and a place where the truth is often relative and where the truth is something that we can kind of just make up for ourselves. I think it's one of the reasons, kind of growing up in a culture where the truth is relative, the truth can mean whatever you mean it to me. I think it's one reason why this story about Pilate and his interrogation of Jesus, this trial of Jesus where he asked the question, what is truth? It's a question that's always resonated with me. And I remember even in high school reading this story and thinking, that's it. That's the question. And I don't know if I resonate with it so much because I'm a person who's prone to doubt and questioning and and really wrestling with my faith. And a lot of times I do see things in scriptures and I think, I don't know if I like that very much. And so I have to kind of come up and and learn about what is actually going on and what's true. I don't know if it's just because I I grew up in a society that said there was no such thing as truth. And so there's some sort of part of me that's grappling, trying to hold on to anything that I can believe is true. But this question has always resonated very, very deeply with me. It feels like a a profound question that Pilate asks. The question, what is truth? And and every time I've read that, I've almost read this interrogation of Jesus, this trial of Jesus, where Jesus reveals to him the truth about who he is. He says, I am the king, and I have been born into this world to become king and to testify to this truth. And Pilate's response is, what is truth? And it's almost as if there's a a resignation in his tone of who could ever actually know. It it sounds defeatist. Who could ever actually know what is true? I resonate with Pilate's resignation and his defeatist attitude about how do we know what is true? And I think when it comes down to it, the story that we're looking at today, Jesus on trial, God on trial before humanity and before Pilate, it's a trial like any other. The point of a trial is to discover and find out what is true. What is the truth at the heart of things? And I think this is the trial where the truth is being searched for and looked for and discovered. And so as we dive into this story, I think there are two things about the the truth that are revealed in Jesus Christ that we're going to be looking at today. And the question is for us is how do we respond to the truth that's revealed about Jesus? Do we accept it? Do we believe it? Or like my friends on Wordle, do we resist and reject and push back because it doesn't fit with our illusions of ourselves or the world? That's the journey that we're on in this story today. 
And so after Jesus and Pilate share this discourse about the truth and the truth is on trial, it, it moves to a, a section of where Jesus is sentenced and where Pilate makes these pronouncements and these proclamations about who Jesus is. In essence, he, he challenges the people there with a verdict about who Jesus is. And there's two different claims that he makes. But what you've got to understand is that as Pilate makes these revelations about Jesus, proclaims these truths about Jesus, John is saying he is doing them very sarcastically. He is mocking Jesus in these moments with these truth proclamations, and yet John is using them. He's saying that this sarcasm in irony is being used to reveal the truth about who Jesus is, which I think is proof that one of the spiritual gifts is sarcasm. So you can take that away with you if someone gets mad at you about that. Actually, don't take that with you. But this is where we pick up the story uh, after what was just read in verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And it says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. They went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And a pause. Because I think it's so fascinating that the center of the Christian narrative, the center of the Christian story, is a story about the humiliation of our God. There's no other religion or worldview that lifts up its prophets or its priests or its deities as being humiliated before humanity. And yet for Christianity, the, the central event of our faith is the humiliation of our creator and our God. And it goes on and John says, Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man which feels like a really weird phrase for Pilate to use in this situation. We've just been told that Jesus, in, sense, in a sense, has been coronated and crowned king, even with the crown of thorns. He's been placed with a purple robe, clothed with a purple robe. He's been hailed as king of the Jews. And then Pilate, Pilate brings him out and instead of saying, here is your king, to mock the Jews and say, yeah, look at your king. We've beaten him up. We've bruised him. We've battered him. We've humiliated him. Look at you. He's the representation. He says, here is the man. And you've got to ask, what is going on here? Like, why does Pilate proclaim, here's the man? That's such an awkward, weird phrase to say about someone. Clearly, everyone there knows Jesus is a man. It's not some weird, like, gender reveal party where, like, yep, while we were beating them, we checked, and yep, turns out he's a dude. Like, what is going on? And yet, what I think is happening in this moment is that in Pilate's mockery of Jesus, in his humiliation of Jesus, John is saying there's a deeper truth about who Jesus is being revealed. And I think that, that the truth that's being revealed is this idea of, of Jesus as the man goes back very far in ancient history. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the book of John, in, in John 1, it says that Jesus is the word become flesh, God dwelling among us, God becoming man. 
And John uses this interesting language about Jesus being the image and representation of God. And this idea of someone being the image of God or the image of the king goes back very far in ancient history. In fact, if you've ever been to a museum and you've ever looked at, have anyone ever seen uh, the old statues of like Roman emperors or the busts of the Roman emperor's faces? It doesn't matter if you go and see that in a museum in the UK or in the United States or wherever you go in the world. If you look at the, the little description of where they found these statues, what's fascinating is you will almost never see that they were found in Rome. Almost every time these statues were found in places like Egypt or Israel or Spain. And what's going on there is that the emperors of that time, they would create images of themselves and they would send them out to the entire empire so that people could know who their true king was. That when they saw these, they didn't need those statues in Rome because everyone could see them in Rome. But they would send these statues out so that as people saw these statues, they would know, oh, that's our king. That's the person we've given our allegiance to. That's the person we pay taxes to. That's the person who's brought peace and prosperity to our region. And the emperors would send out images of their likeness to establish their rule and their reign and their domain. What we're told is that this was actually a practice that went well before the Roman Empire. In fact, ancient kings used to do this all the time. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 where it says, When God created the universe and the cosmos and our world, he placed within his creation, within his kingdom, within his domain, images of his likeness so that people would know who their true king and ruler is. And it says that that is the role that humanity played, that Adam and Eve were the image of the living God. God didn't place statues, but living people to represent him in his world. But we know from the story in Genesis that the first people who who were tasked with that responsibility failed at it miserably. And in fact, all of humanity, you can look at it as a a history of trying to get back to the moment where where we are trying to represent God and and live for God as his true representatives, and we can't. I think in this proclamation that Pilate makes, ironically, about Jesus, he is making the proclamation, Jesus is the full image of God. God in human form, the the way that we were designed and supposed to represent God, Jesus is the one who has done that perfectly. Karl Barth says when Pilate makes this proclamation, he says Jesus is man, the full image of what it means to be human, unmarred by sin, the full representation of God. That is the truth about who Jesus is. He is the full representation of God in human form. This is what Wesley Hill says about this revelation and this truth about Jesus. He says that woven into the fabric of Christian theology is the insistence that Jesus Christ is the truest, most perfect, most glorious human being who has ever lived. And that those who experience true, who want to experience true, full, rich humanness must become like him, must pattern their lives after Jesus' humanity. See, what John is saying about the trial of Jesus in this moment, that the truth about Jesus was being revealed, that he is the only true, fully human. That when God sent his image into the world, the the representation of when he wanted us to know what God looks like, he sent us Jesus Christ, 
so that we could know who God is and what he looks like and what the truth about God is. And it is fascinating to me that that proclamation is made after Jesus is humiliated. After Jesus has been flogged and beaten and mocked and ridiculed. You see, the truth about Jesus is that when we look at him, we see the image of God that God wants us to know him as. The truth about Jesus is that when we look at Jesus, we see a God, a living, loving God who is bruised and bleeding. That is the image that God chose to reveal about himself, that God wanted us to know about himself. What's fascinating to me is I don't think that that idea, the idea of a suffering God, the weakness of God, that he would subject himself to that kind I don't know that we always like that idea. In fact, there was a film made a few years ago in, in I, think, I believe it was 2008, and it was on the BBC, and it was called God on Trial. And in this movie, there's a trial going on where Jews who are in concentration camp, Men who are experiencing some of the horrors of the Holocaust, they put God on trial in this place. And as they're discussing, and and some people are trying to defend God, and some people are saying there's no defense for God because of the things that are happening to us. He's abandoned us. He's not good. He's not just. He may not even be real. Someone counters with the argument that, yeah, but we we believe that God has always been with us in our suffering. The the people of God have always experienced God with us, no matter what we've experienced, exile or, or people conquering us or people taking our land or even the Holocaust, God has been with us. To which one of the other prisoners responds, what good is a suffering God? The truth is most of us don't want a God who suffers. We want a God who fixes things. And so, yeah, it can maybe serve as some sort of comforting moment that, okay, God, like, understands our suffering, but, but it doesn't get us very far because we need someone who can come and fix the things that we're going through. I don't know that we love this truth that is revealed about God and Jesus in this trial, and, and I don't think the people who heard this truth about Jesus liked it very much either because this is what John goes on to say in verse 6. He says, as soon as the chief priests... And their officials saw him. They shouted, crucify, crucify. See, when they are confronted with the truth about who God is, their response is to say, it's a rejection of that truth. It's a resistance to that truth. It's a, it's a uh, we will kill that kind of God because that's not the kind of God that we need. We need a God who can do something about our suffering, not who is subject to suffering. Which I think leads us to the second truth that's revealed about Jesus in this moment. You see, because after Jesus makes this proclamation about himself, and then Pilate makes this proclamation about Jesus being the man, and the people shout, crucify him, Pilate doesn't really know what to do at this point, because he doesn't really see a way to sentence Jesus to death, even though that's what they're asking for. And he says, he says as much, he says, I can't find a way to sentence him to execution like you want me to. And they bring the only charge that they have against Jesus in the whole story. In fact, in the story we read earlier where Pilate asked, what's the charge against him? They say, we wouldn't bring him here unless he did something bad, which is the worst charge. you could Like, just trust us. He's probably done something bad. Like, he deserves to be killed. 
And the only charge they bring before him is in the next chapter in verse 19, where they say that he has claimed to be the son of God. And according to our laws, he must be killed. And we're told that there's this interesting response from Pilate. As soon as they say he has claimed to be the son of God, it tells us that Pilate is afraid. He's fearful. Because what you've got to understand is that in the ancient world, the, the son of God, it was not some Christian religious term at that point. It was a term associated with Caesar. Pilate is wondering, he's questioning, he is afraid that maybe this person is coming from, from Caesar or has some sort of connection to the son of God, his ruler, his emperor, his king. He's wondering, am I in over my head? And so he runs back into Jesus and he says, where are you from? And Jesus, in a sense, asking him, are you from Caesar? Are you from my bosses? Are you, from, are you of a higher authority than me? And Jesus doesn't respond. And Pilate says, don't you know that I have the ability to crucify you or to let you go free? To which Jesus responds, you have been given no authority over me except that which has come from above. And it terrifies Pilate because he thinks he is in over his head and he is dealing with someone that is above him. And this is what it goes on to tell us. It says that from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept on shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You've got to understand, this is a veiled threat. They're saying if this man has claimed to be king, he has set himself up in opposition to Caesar. And if he is claiming to be the son of God, then he is claiming to have authority over you. And if you don't do something about it, then we're going to tell Caesar and Caesar will do something to you because you have allowed this person to, to rebel against the authority of our emperor. And we have letters from emperors in, in ancient Rome where they would send letters to governors who failed in the way that Pilate is, seems like he's about to fail in this moment where he say, hey, you didn't live up to what I expected from you, so why don't you go ahead and just take your own life? I, I don't even have the energy to take it for you. I just want you to get out of the picture. And this is a veiled threat against Pilate. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus in, and Pilate sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, at a place which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation and the Passover, and it was about noon. And listen to the second proclamation, the second truth claim that is made about Jesus. He says, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. You see, what you've got to understand again in this moment, Pilate is not saying that, yeah, he is a true king. He's saying, look at him. I mean, he has been beaten and flogged. He's wearing a crown of thorns and a robe. I have made him king. What threat is he to me or to Caesar? He's no king. He's a homeless man with no friends and no one to stand up for him. There's no threat here. And yet what John says is even in this mockery, the truth is being proclaimed about Jesus, that he is the one true king. But John is trying to build the argument that he is a very different kind of king. Even in Pilate's mockery, 
he is naming the truth about Jesus' kingship. That he's a very different kind of king than we have ever seen in the history of the world before. You see, earlier in, in, in chapter 18, which we read earlier, Jesus makes this proclamation about his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Which sounds like a very weird thing for Jesus to say. Because we know even in the Lord's prayer, he says, pray that my kingdom will come into this world. That, that the kingdom of God would reign on earth as it is in heaven. And so we often hear this, this phrase where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And we think it's some sort of spiritual reality. It's just Jesus just reigns in our hearts. And, and there's no, nothing that actually has to do with our world or our existence here. It's just that Jesus can change and transform me and make me different and make me whole. And that's what it means for him to be king and Lord is, is that he'll just fix my life. And yet what John is saying is that no, Jesus' kingdom... When Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying that it's not for this world. He's saying that it is not from this world, that it does not have its origins in the world. That how every kingdom has ever been established has always been through the sword and through conquering and through oppression and through violence. People inflicting their power on others. In fact, he goes on to say that if I were a king like the one in this world, then I would have my servants rise up in rebellion and fight for me. But Jesus is not the kind of king who calls his people to violence, but to lay down their swords. You see, what the truth about Jesus is in this moment is that he is a very different kind of king. Jesus is saying that the power of his kingdom comes not from the sword, but from the cross. Not from violence inflicted on others, but violence endured upon himself. Not conquering through killing others, but conquering through his own self-sacrificial death. See, Jesus is making the argument that he is a very different kind of king. If you want to know the truth about what kind of king Jesus is, then look at his coronation, where he's not crowned with, with a crown of gold and jewels, but a crown of thorns, where he's not given a throne to sit upon, but a cross to hang upon. Jesus comes to power very, very differently than anyone else in the history of the world. And as I've been thinking about this week, it, it's such a compelling image to me. Because when I look at our leaders, whether you look at, at, at the Senate or the White House or celebrities in Hollywood or even church pastor celebrities, one thing that it has continually struck me is that we are surrounded and, and the image of leadership that we have is one where leadership and power always, almost always outpaces character. Almost always. It doesn't matter who's elected. We live in a world where leadership is constantly outpaced by character. Where power and privilege always outpaces people's character. And when you look at our society and so many of the problems we have, that's the heart of it, isn't it? It's we have leadership and people who are more self-interested than other interested, that, that they use power for themselves instead of for others. And, and there was even a documentary that just came out within the last few weeks about one of the largest churches in the world 
And in this documentary, this celebrity pastor is lifted up, and there's truth proclaimed about this church and, and truth revealed about this church of how they oppressed, abused, manipulated people, the way that they oppressed women, that they mistreated people, the way that they hoarded wealth for themselves, all in the name of Jesus. See, we live in a world where we lift people up because they're charismatic or they're good speakers or because they have some sort of power. We think they can fix the world for us. They think, we think they can do something for us. And yet time and time and time and time again, they let us down and they fail because their power outpaces their character. And yet we have this compelling vision of Jesus where he is the most powerful human to ever have lived. In fact, in the other Gospels, it says that if he wanted to, he could call down legions of angels in this moment to protect him and save him. And yet he chooses the path of self-sacrificial love. And my question as I've been looking at this passage and wrestling is, why would we give our allegiance to so many of these people who fail us again and again and again. Why would we place our hope in them when Jesus gives us a different image of what it means to be in power? Why do I continually look for people to fix my world rather than giving my allegiance to Jesus? What we see, I think the, the haunting nature of this story is what we see in the response of the people in this moment so often echoes our own response. Because when Pilate says, here is your king, and Jesus has made the argument, he's a different kind of king. This is the people's response. They say, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate asked, should I crucify your king? And this is one of the most devastating moments in all of scripture, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. That, that moment, those words are so devastating because I see them within myself almost every day that I get up is that I am willing to proclaim I have no king but Caesar and reject the truth about who Jesus is. And the chief priests in this moment, I think it's so devastating and so tragic because until this moment, the people of God, the people of Israel have always been the people that no matter who is in charge of them, no matter who has conquered them, no matter who has taken over their lands, they're the people that always say, well, that emperor, that king, that ruler, they're just a pretender to the throne. Our true king is God. And in this moment, they reject that and claim allegiance to Caesar and turn their back on the truth of who God is that's standing in front of them. I wonder for how many of us, when we see this picture of Jesus presented to us, how many of us choose to have no king but Caesar instead of giving our allegiance to Jesus? How do we respond to the truth about who Jesus is? And the truth is that most of the time in my life, it's not as brazen or as bold as the chief priest in this moment. Most of the time, 
My allegiance is just more fickle. It's more incremental. I'll give Jesus partial allegiance, but still claim Caesar and other things and allegiance to someone or someone else that I think can give me the things that I want and that I need. I used to, to drive this uh, car in high school. It was a, there's a picture of it. Um, it's not a great picture because it's a 1996 um, Saturn SC2. Um, and there's not a lot of them on the roads anymore. So this was the largest picture I could find. It's still a little grainy. Uh, but this was the car I had when I was 16 and I was able to start driving. And uh, because I was 16, uh, it was just a car that I kind of inherited from my family. And it wasn't a great car. There were lots of things that were breaking down with it constantly. And um, I like to call it uh, the Batmobile um, because I was a 16 and I was a loser. Um, but... <laughs> It, uh, it was a cool car. I loved it. But when I say like things were breaking down with this car, it, it was constantly needing to go into the shop. And there were things that were wrong with it that like I just couldn't even figure out how to fix or how to tell a mechanic. Like, like if you went too fast too quickly, which was really hard to do, even though it was a stick shift, like it was really hard to rev that thing. But when you went too fast too quickly, the, the passenger seat would just like flop back. And so people would be sitting in it next to me, and my wife can attest to this. I took her to school when we were in high school and dating, and we would be driving somewhere, and all of a sudden, it just like, she's just like laid out. Wouldn't tell my friends, and so I'd be taking guys on the basketball team like out to lunch and not tell them and like try to gun it, and they, what are you doing? And they'd flop back. I mean, it was, a, it was a piece of work. There were so many things that were wrong with it. And I would take it in to try to get it fixed and get things to, to kind of keep it running and make sure that it could still get me to school and the places I needed to go and to work. And, but I, I never had enough money to fix all of the things that were wrong with it. And so I'd take it into the mechanic. I'd say, hey, can, can we just like worry about this piece of it? And then I'll just like get to this down the line when I have more money. Because I was a busboy at Spring Creek Barbecue making five fifteen. I didn't have money to fix like the transmission and stuff, Okay. Um, and so I would give him these, these things to do incrementally with my car. And eventually it kind of caught up with me and the car stopped working. And I wonder how many of us have a similar posture with Jesus as king. And that we come to him and we have these broken parts of ourselves, these things that we want him to fix. But, but we only give him some of the things that we want him to fix. And we, we keep some of them for later. And we say, oh, yeah, Jesus, you can have my Sunday mornings. I'll give you my Sunday mornings. But you can't have my politics. I, I don't want you to touch how I vote or how I think about the world or how I interact with the world. And so, yeah, I'll show up on Sunday. But how I engage with politics, I mean, after all, separation, church and state, we don't want things to get too close. Like, I'm just going to do my own thing. And, and so we give him incremental parts of our lives and hoard other parts of ourselves. Or, or we come to him and we say, yeah, Jesus, like, I know I have this problem with anger and I know I need to, to do something about it. I would love for you to fix that, but I'm not ready to give you my, my porn addiction yet. And I'm going to hang on to that one and we can get to that down the line. Or Jesus, you can have some of my money and I want to be generous with you, but you can't have all of my money because after all, I worked really hard for what I have. See, now I wonder if some of us live in this tension where we have bowed the knee to Jesus partially. We have given him partial allegiance. But there are places in our lives that we are still hanging on to. That we are refusing to give him full allegiance to. And in some ways that's fine to do with a mechanic. But it is not okay to do with a king. Jesus is not a king who wants our partial allegiance. He does not want incremental parts of our lives. He wants us to invite him to be invasive with every part of our heart, soul, and minds until every part of ourselves has bowed in allegiance to him, the one true king.
And I'm genuinely curious for, for all of us where God in this moment might be bringing up those things that we know we're hanging on to. Where might God be, be prying our hands open to say, you have been hanging on to this and refusing to give this to me. It's time. Because if the truth about Jesus is that he is a man like no other man and a king like no other king, why would we not? What are we holding on to? What is keeping us from trusting him? If this is the kind of king Jesus has revealed himself to be, a king that does not seize power, but self-sacrificially lays himself down for the sake of others. Why couldn't we trust him? Why couldn't we give ourselves to him? You see, I think when God is put on trial, when Jesus is put on trial and it is revealed that he is a man like no other man we've ever seen, and that it is in following him and his ways and his commands that we can experience the fullness of who we were created to be too. That, of course, an implication of that is that we give ourselves to the king. That we bow in allegiance to him. And I think one of the things that's often hard for us, so this is the point where, where we say, well, can I actually trust God? Like, can I give him my full self? It's great that that's the kind of king. It's great that he was willing to suffer. But can I give him my full self? And it's actually a question that, that has come up throughout human history and in many different art forms and places where people have placed God on trial. And I mentioned one of them earlier, the, the BBC movie where they say, that's the title of it is God on Trial. And there's another author, his name is Eli Weissel, who also lived through the Holocaust. And, and he tells a story that when he was actually in Auschwitz, the people put God on trial. And he, and he has this play about it. But one of my favorite um, examples of the story of God on trial comes from a little play called The Long Silence. And at the heart of it is the question of whether or not God can be trusted, whether or not God is good, whether or not a king who suffers is actually worth following. And so in this play, it's the end of human history and all of humanity has come before the throne of God. But they come in indignation and anger and frustration. They come before the throne of God and there's people who have, have survived the Holocaust and there are people who have been lynched under the, the Jim Crow laws of, of racial segregation and, and racism. And there are people who have, who have experienced all of the horrors of humanity, who have been manipulated and abused and, and raped and, and experienced all sorts of oppression and injustice. And they come before God and they say, who are you to judge us? Look at what we've endured. Look at what we've been through. In this play, the, the people get together and they decide that they're going to judge God and they're going to come up with a verdict for God, a sentence that he has to serve. And so people begin shouting out ideas about what would make God their equal and how they would experience justice if he endured the same things that they did. And so they say that, that God must be born a man. And he must be born under oppression and, and slavery the same way that we have been. 
And he must experience injustice and false accusations against himself. He must experience the horrors of of torture. He must experience the, the oppression and injustice and ridicule and mockery. He must be beaten. And ultimately, he must die to understand what we have been through. And then there's a long silence. Because the masses of humanity who have gathered before the throne of God realize and recognize in that moment that God has already served his sentence. See, I think at times we come to King Jesus And we see the suffering and we see that he's a part of it, but we miss the truth that we'll talk about next week, that it is not just a king who suffers, but a king who conquers through suffering that deserves our full allegiance. It's always been a marvel to me that as Jesus is about to to endure this trial and, and this suffering, and the humiliation that he endures. Before he goes through all of those things, he calls his band of followers together. And in a quiet room on the eve before he endures this, he has them gather around and he feasts with them. And at the heart of this feast is a desire for him to communicate to his followers, his closest friends, that as we come together at the table, I want you to remember all of the things that I am about to endure. I want you to recall the suffering and the humiliation. I want you to to remember what was said about me. I want you to remember what I endured. I want you to remember the sentence I will serve so that you might go free. And as we come to the table today, that is what we remember on this Palm Sunday. It's the truth about Jesus is that he is a man like no other and a king like no other who is willing to suffer and die so that we might go free and be liberated from suffering and death. Isn't that the kind of king that we can give our allegiance to? And if you would now, join me in taking communion. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you I feel haunted within myself about this story and the ways that I see so much of myself in this story.
God, I thank you that even when we are reluctant to give our allegiance to you, even when we hesitate to submit to your will, even when we try to bend you around our lives instead of bending our lives around your will and your ways, that God, you are faithful. And yet, God, in this moment, I would pray for each and every one of us in this room or whether they're joining us at home, that if there are places in our lives where we are hesitant to give ourselves to you, God, I ask that your spirit would move within us, that, that you would pry on our hands and our hearts to open ourselves more fully to you the things that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness of who we were created to be, that, God, we would see the beauty and the grace and the mercy that you offer us and that we would release ourselves more fully to you, the one true and good and faithful King. God, I pray and for anyone here who is still hesitating, that we would bow in allegiance to you, that we would receive the depths of your mercy and your love and your grace, and that we would know the truth of what it means to have you reign in our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.